0: Section 63 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 18, Chapter 4. Containing two letters in very different styles. My worthy friend, I informed you in my last that I was forbidden the use of the waters, as they were found by experience rather to increase than lessen the symptoms of my distemper. I must now acquaint you with a piece of news which, I believe, will afflict my friends more than it hath afflicted me. Dr. Harrington and Dr. Brewster have informed me that there is no hopes of my recovery. I have somewhere read that the great use of philosophy is to learn to die.' I will not, therefore, so far disgrace mine as to show any surprise at receiving a lesson which I must be thought to have so long studied. Yet, to say the truth, one page of the Gospel teaches this lesson better than all the volumes of ancient or modern philosophers. The assurance it gives us of another life is a much stronger support to a good mind than all the consolations that are drawn from the necessity of nature." the emptiness or satiety of our enjoyments here, or any other topic of those declamations, which are sometimes capable of arming our minds with a stubborn patience in bearing the thoughts of death, but never of raising them to a real contempt of it, and much less of making us think it is a real good. I would not here be understood to throw the horrid censure of atheism, or even the absolute denial of immortality, on all who are called philosophers.' Many of that sect, as well ancient as modern, have, from the light of reason, discovered some hopes of a future state. But, in reality, that light was so faint and glimmering, and the hopes were so uncertain and precarious, that it may be justly doubted on which side their belief turned. Plato himself concludes his Phelan with declaring that his best arguments amount only to raise a probability and Cicero himself seems rather to profess an inclination to believe than any actual belief in the doctrines of immortality. As to myself, to be very sincere with you, I never was much in earnest in this faith till I was in earnest a Christian. You will perhaps wonder at the latter expression, but I assure you it hath not been till very lately that I could, with truth, call myself so. The pride of philosophy had intoxicated my reason, and the sublimest of all wisdom appeared to me, as it did to the Greeks of old, to be foolishness. God hath, however, been so gracious to show me my error in time, and to bring me into the way of truth, before I sunk into utter darkness for ever. I find myself beginning to grow weak. I shall therefore hasten to the main purpose of this letter." when i reflect on the actions of my past life i know of nothing which sits heavier upon my conscience than the injustice i have been guilty of to that poor wretch your adopted son i have indeed not only connived at the villainy of others but been myself active in injustice towards him believe me my dear friend when i tell you on the word of a dying man he hath been basely injured as to the principal fact upon the misrepresentation of which you discarded him I solemnly assure you he is innocent. When you lay upon your supposed deathbed, he was the only person in the house who testified any real concern, and what happened afterwards arose from the wildness of his joy on your recovery, and, I am sorry to say it, from the baseness of another person, but it is my desire to justify the innocent and to accuse none.' Believe me, my friend, this young man hath the noblest generosity of heart, the most perfect capacity for friendship, the highest integrity, and, indeed, every virtue which can ennoble a man. He hath some faults, but among them is not to be numbered the least want of duty or gratitude towards you. On the contrary, I am satisfied when you dismissed him from your house, his heart bled for you more than for himself.' Worldly motives were the wicked and base reasons of my concealing this from you so long. To reveal it now I can have no inducement but the desire of serving the cause of truth, of doing right to the innocent, and of making all the amends in my power for a past offence. I hope this declaration, therefore, will have the effect desired, and will restore this deserving young man to your favour the hearing of which, while I am yet alive, will afford the utmost consolation to, sir, your most obliged, obedient, humble servant, Thomas Square. The reader will, after this, scarce wonder at the revolution so visibly appearing in Mr. Alworthy, notwithstanding he received from Tweckham by the same post, another letter of a very different kind, which we shall here add, as it may possibly be the last time we shall have occasion to mention the name of that gentleman sir i am not at all surprised at hearing from your worthy nephew a fresh instance of the villainy of Mrs. square the atheist's young pupil i shall not wonder at any murders he may commit and i heartily pray that your own blood may not seal up his final commitment to the place of wailing and gnashing of teeth though you cannot want sufficient calls to repentance for the many unwarrantable weaknesses exemplified in your behaviour to this wretch so much to the prejudice of your own lawful family and of your character i say though these may sufficiently be supposed to prick and goad your conscience at this season i should yet be wanting to my duty if i spare to give you some admonition in order to bring you to a due sense of your errors i therefore pray you seriously to consider the judgment which is likely to overtake this wicked villain and let it serve at least as a warning to you that you may not for the future despise the advice of one who is so indefatigable in his prayers for your welfare. Had not my hand been withheld from due correction I had scorched much of this diabolical spirit out of a boy of whom from his infancy I discovered the devil had taken such entire possession. But reflections of this kind now come too late. I am sorry you have given away the living of Westerton so hastily, I should have applied on that occasion earlier had I thought you would not have acquainted me previous to the disposition. Your objection to pluralities is being righteous overmuch. If there were any crime in the practice, so many godly men would not agree to it. If the vicar of Aldergrove should die, as we hear he is in a declining way, I hope you will think of me, since I am certain you must be convinced of my most sincere attachment to your highest welfare.' a welfare to which all worldly considerations are as trifling as the small tithes mentioned in scripture are, when compared to the weighty matters of the law. I am, sir, your faithful, humble servant, Roger Thwackham. This was the first time Thwackham ever wrote in this authoritative style to Alworthy, and of this he had afterwards sufficient reason to repent, as in the case of those who mistake the highest degree of goodness for the lowest degree of weakness— alworthy had indeed never liked this man he knew him to be proud and ill-natured he also knew that his divinity itself was tinctured with his temper and such as in many respects he himself did by no means approve but he was at the same time an excellent scholar and most indefatigable in teaching the two lads add to this the strict severity of his life and manners an unimpeached honesty and a most devout attachment to religion so that, upon the whole, though Alworthy did not esteem nor love the man, yet he could never bring himself to part with the tutor to the boys who was, both by learning and industry, extremely well qualified for his office, and he hoped that as they were bred up in his own house, and under his own eye, he should be able to correct whatever was wrong in Thwackham's instructions. CHAPTER V. IN WHICH THE HISTORY IS CONTINUED Mr. Alworthy, in his last speech, had recollected some tender ideas concerning Jones, which had brought tears into the good man's eyes. This, Mrs. Miller, observing, said, "'Yes, yes, sir, your goodness to this poor young man is known, notwithstanding all your care to conceal it. But there is not a single syllable of truth in what those villains said. Mr. Nightingale hath now discovered the whole matter. It seems these fellows were employed by a lord, who is a rival of poor Mr. Jones, to have pressed him on board a ship.' I assure them I don't know who they will press next. Mr. Nightingale here hath seen the officer himself, who is a very pretty gentleman, and hath told him all, and is very sorry for what he undertook, which he would never have done had he known Mr. Jones to have been a gentleman, but he was told that he was a common strolling vagabond. Allworthy stared at all this, and declared he was a stranger to every word she said. Yes, sir, answered she, I believe you are. "'It is a very different story, I believe, from what those fellows told this lawyer.' "'What lawyer, madam? "'What is it you mean?' said Orly. "'Nay, nay,' said she, "'this is so like you to deny your own goodness. "'But Mr. Nightingale here saw him.' "'Saw whom, madam?' answered he. "'Why, your lawyer, sir,' said she, "'that you so kindly sent to inquire into the affair.' "'I am still in the dark, upon my honour, said Orly, "'Why, then, do you tell him, my dear sir?' cries she. "'Indeed, sir,' said Nightingale, "'I did see that very lawyer who went from you when I came into the room at an alehouse house in Aldersgate, in company with two of the fellows who were employed by Lord Fellamar to press Mr. Jones, and who were by that means present at the unhappy encounter between him and Mr. Fitzpatrick.' "'I own, sir,' said mrs miller when i saw this gentleman come into the room to you i told mr nightingale that i apprehended you had sent him thither to inquire into the affair allworthy showed marks of astonishment in his countenance at this news and was indeed for two or three minutes struck dumb by it at last addressing himself to mr nightingale he said i must confess myself sir more surprised at what you tell me than i have ever been before at anything in my whole life "'Are you certain this was the gentleman?' "'I am most certain,' answered Nightingale. "'At Aldersgate, cries Orworthy. "'And was you in company with this lawyer and the two fellows?' "'I was, sir,' said the other, "'very near half an hour.' "'Well, sir,' said Orworthy, "'and in what manner did the lawyer behave? "'Did you hear all that passed between him and the fellows?' "'No, sir,' answered Nightingale. "'They had been together before I came.' In my presence the lawyer said little, but after I had several times examined the fellows who persisted in a story directly contrary to what I had heard from Mr. Jones, and which I find by Mr. Fitzpatrick was a rank falsehood, the lawyer then desired the fellows to say nothing but what was the truth, and seemed to speak so much in favour of Mr. Jones, that when I saw the same person with you, I concluded your goodness had prompted you to send him thither. "'And did you not send him thither?' says Mrs. Miller. "'Indeed I did not.' "'answered Alworthy. "'Nor did I know he had gone on such an errand till this moment. "'I see it all,' said Mrs. Miller. "'Upon my soul I see it all. "'No wonder they have been closeted so close lately. "'Son Nightingale, let me beg you, run for these fellows immediately. "'Find them out if they are above ground. "'I will go myself.' "'Dear madam,' said Orworthy, "'be patient, and do me the favour to send a servant upstairs "'to call Mr. Dowling hither, if he be in the house.' or if not mr bliffle mrs miller went out muttering something to herself and presently returned with an answer that mr downing was gone but that the daughter, as she called him was coming allworthy was of a cooler disposition than the good woman whose spirits were all up in arms in the cause of her friend he was not however without some suspicions which were nearer akin to hers when bliffle came into the room he asked him with a very serious countenance and with a less friendly look than he had ever before given him whether he knew anything of mr dowling's having seen any of the persons who were present at the duel between jones and another gentleman there is nothing so dangerous as a question which comes by surprise on a man whose business it is to conceal truth or to defend falsehood for which reason those worthy personages whose noble office it is to save the lives of their fellow-creatures at the old bailey take the utmost care by frequent previous examination, to divine every question which may be asked their clients on the day of trial, that they may be supplied with proper and ready answers, which the most fertile invention cannot supply in an instant. Besides, the sudden and violent impulse on the blood occasioned by these surprises causes frequently such an alteration in the countenance that the man is obliged to give evidence against himself.' and such, indeed, were the alterations which the countenance of Bliffle underwent from this sudden question, that we can scarce blame the eagerness of Mrs. Miller, who immediately cried out, "'Guilty! upon my honour! guilty! upon my soul!' Mr. Orworthy sharply rebuked her for this impetuosity, and then, turning to Bliffle, who seemed sinking into the earth, he said, "'Why do you hesitate, sir, at giving me an answer? You certainly must have employed him, for he would not, of his own accord, I believe, have undertaken such an errand, and especially without acquainting me. Bliffle then answered, "'I own, sir, I have been guilty of an offence, yet may I hope your pardon.' "'My pardon?' said Orworthy, very angrily. "'Nay, sir,' answered Bliffle, "'I knew you would be offended, yet surely my dear uncle will forgive the effects of the most amiable of human weaknesses.' compassion for those who do not deserve it i own is a crime and yet it is a crime from which you yourself are not entirely free i know i have been guilty of it in more than one instance to this very person and i will own i did send mr dowling not on a vain and fruitless inquiry but to discover the witnesses and to endeavour to soften their evidence this sir is the truth which though i intended to conceal from you i will not deny i confess said nightingale this is the light in which it appeared to me from the gentleman's behaviour now madam said alworthy i believe you will once in your life own you have entertained a wrong suspicion and are not so angry with my nephew as you was mrs miller was silent for though she could not so easily be pleased with bliffle whom she looked upon to have been the ruin of jones yet in this particular instance he had imposed upon her as well as upon the rest so entirely had the devil stood his friend and indeed i look upon the vulgar observation that the devil often deserts his friends and leaves them in the lurch to be a great abuse on that gentleman's character perhaps he may sometimes desert those who are only his cup acquaintance or who at most are but half his but he generally stands by those who are thoroughly his servants and helps them off in all extremities till their bargain expires as a conquered rebellion strengthens a government or as health is more perfectly established by recovery from some diseases, so anger, when removed, often gives new life to affection. This was the case of Mr. Alworthy, for Bliffle having wiped off the greater suspicion, the lesser, which had been raised by Square's letter, sunk, of course, and was forgotten, and Thwackham, with whom he was greatly offended, bore alone all the reflections which Square had cast on the enemies of Jones.' As for that young man, the resentment of Mr. Alworthy began more and more to abate towards him. He told Bliffle. He did not only forgive the extraordinary efforts of his good nature, but would give him the pleasure of following his example. Then, turning to Mrs. Miller with a smile which would have become an angel, he cried, "'What say you, madam? Shall we take a hackney-coach, and all of us together pay a visit to your friend? I promise you it is not the first visit I have made in a prison.' Every reader, I believe, will be able to answer for the worthy woman, but they must have a great deal of good nature, and be well acquainted with friendship, who can feel what she felt on this occasion. Few, I hope, are capable of feeling what now passed in the mind of Bliffle, but those who are will acknowledge that it was impossible for him to raise any objection to this visit. Fortune, however, or the gentleman lately mentioned above, stood his friend, and prevented his undergoing so great a shock for at the very instant when the coach was sent for, Partridge arrived, and, having called Mrs. Miller from the company, acquainted her with a dreadful accident lately come to light, and hearing Mr. Orrithy's intention, begged her to find some means of stopping him. For, says he, the matter must at all hazards be kept a secret from him, and if he should now go, he'll find Mr. Jones and his mother, who arrived just as I left him, lamenting over one another the horrid crime they have ignorantly committed.' The poor woman, who was almost deprived of her senses at his dreadful news, was never less capable of invention than at present. However, as women are much readier at this than men, she bethought herself of an excuse, and, returning to Orly, said, "'I am sure, sir, you will be surprised at hearing any objection from me to the kind proposal you just now made, and yet I am afraid of the consequence of it if carried immediately into execution.' You must imagine, sir, that all the calamities which have lately befallen this poor young fellow must have thrown him into the lowest dejection of spirits. And now, sir, should we all on a sudden fling him into such a violent fit of joy, as I know your presence will occasion, it may, I am afraid, produce some fatal mischief, especially as his servant, who is without, tells me he is very far from being well. "'Is his servant without?' cries Orworthy. "'Pray call him hither.' "'I will ask him some questions concerning his master.' Partridge was at first afraid to appear before Mr. Alworthy, but was at length persuaded after Mrs. Miller, who had often heard his whole story from his own mouth, had promised to introduce him. Alworthy recollected Partridge the moment he came into the room, though many years had passed since he had seen him. Mrs. Miller, therefore, might have spared her a formal oration, in which, indeed, she was something prolix. For the reader, I believe, may have observed already that the good woman, among other things, had a tongue always ready for the service of her friends. "'And are you,' said Alworthy to Partridge, "'the servant of Mr. Jones?' "'I can't say, sir,' answered he, "'that I am regularly a servant, but I live with him, and please your honour, at present. "'Non sum qualus irum, as your honour very well knows.' mr alworthy then asked him many questions concerning jones as to his health and other matters to all which partridge answered without having the least regard to what was but considered only what he would have things appear for a strict adherence to truth was not among the articles of this honest fellow's morality or his religion during this dialogue mr nightingale took his leave and presently after mrs miller left the room when alworthy likewise dispatched for he imagined that partridge when alone with him would be more explicit than before company they were no sooner left in private together than already began as in the following chapter chapter six in which the history is farther continued sure friend said the good man you are the strangest of all human beings not only to have suffered as you have formerly for obstinately persisting in a falsehood but to persist in it thus to the last and to pass thus upon the world for a servant of your own son! What interest can you have in all this? What can be your motive? I see, sir,' said Partridge, falling down upon his knees, that your honour is prepossessed against me, and resolved not to believe anything I say, and therefore what signifies my protestations. But yet there is one above who knows that I am not the father of this young man. How? said Ordy. Will you yet deny what you was formerly convicted of upon such unanswerable, such manifest evidence? Nay, what a confirmation is your being now found with this very man, of all which twenty years ago appeared against you? I thought you had left the country. Nay, I thought you had been long since dead. In what manner did you know anything of this young man? Where did you meet with him, unless you had kept some correspondence together? Do not deny this. "'for I promise you it will greatly raise your son in my opinion "'to find that he hath such a sense of filial duty "'as privately to support his father for so many years. "'If your honour will have patience to hear me,' said Partridge, "'I will tell you all.' "'Being bid go on,' he proceeded thus. "'When your honour conceived that displeasure against me, "'it ended in my ruin soon after, for I lost my little school, "'and the minister, thinking, I suppose, it would be agreeable to your honour turned me out from the office of clerk so that i had nothing to trust to but the barber's shop which in a country place like that is a poor livelihood and when my wife died for till that time i received a pension of twelve pounds a year from an unknown hand which indeed i believe was your honour's own for nobody that ever i heard of doth these things besides but as i was saying when she died this pension forsook me so that now as i owed two or three small debts which began to be troublesome to me, particularly one, which an attorney brought up by law charges from fifteen shillings to nearly thirty pounds, and as I found all my usual means of living had forsook me, I packed up my little all as well as I could, and went off. Footnote This is a fact which I knew happened to a poor clergyman in Dorsetshire, by the villainy of an attorney, who, not contented with the exorbitant costs to which the poor man was put by a single action, brought afterwards another action on the judgment as it was called a method frequently used to oppress the poor and bring money into the pockets of attorneys to the great scandal of the law of the nation of christianity and even of the human nature itself and footnote the first place i came to was Salisbury, where i got into the service of a gentleman belonging to the law and one of the best gentlemen that ever i knew for he was not only good to me, but I know a thousand good and charitable acts which he did while I stayed with him, and I have known him often refuse business because it was paltry and oppressive.' "'You need not be so particular,' said Orworthy. "'I know this gentleman, and a very worthy man he is, and an honour to his profession.' "'Well, sir,' continued Partridge, "'from hence I removed to Lymington, where I was above three years in the service of another lawyer, who was likewise a very good sort of a man.' and to be sure one of the merriest gentlemen in england well sir at the end of the three years i set up a little school and was likely to do well again had it not been for a most unlucky accident here i kept a pig and one day as ill fortune would have it this pig broke out and did a trespass i think they call it in a garden belonging to one of my neighbours who was a proud revengeful man and employed a lawyer one one i can't think of his name "'but he sent for a writ against me, and had me to size. "'When I came there, Lord have mercy upon me, "'to hear what the councillors said. "'There was one that told my lord a parcel of the confoundedest lies about me. "'He said that I used to drive my hogs into other folks' gardens, "'and a great deal more. "'And at last, he said, he hoped I had at last brought my hogs to a fair market. "'To be sure, one would have thought that, "'instead of being owner only of one poor little pig, "'I had been the greatest hog-merchant in England.' "'Well, pray,' said Orworthy, "'do not be so particular. "'I have heard nothing of your son yet.' "'Oh, it was a great many years,' "'answered Partridge, "'before I saw my son, "'as you are pleased to call him. "'I went over to Ireland after this, "'and taught school at Cork, "'for that one suit ruined me again, "'and I lay seven years in Winchester jail.' "'Well,' said Orworthy, "'pass that over till your return to England.' "'Then, sir,' said he, it was about half a year ago that i landed at bristol where i stayed some time and not finding it due there and hearing of a place between that and gloucester where the barber was just dead i went thither and there i had been about two months when mr jones came thither he then gave orworthy a very particular account of their first meeting and of everything as well as he could remember which had happened from that day to this frequently interlarding his story with panegyrics on jones and not forgetting to insinuate the great love and respect which he had for Alworthy. He concluded with saying, "'Now, sir, I have told your honour the whole truth,' and then repeated a most solemn protestation, that he was no more the father of Jones than of the Pope of Rome, and imprecated the most bitter curses on his head if he did not speak truth. "'What am I to think of this matter?' cries Alworthy. "'For what purpose should you so strongly deny a fact "'which I think it would be rather your interest to own?' "'Nay, sir,' answered Partridge, for he could hold no longer. "'If your honour will not believe me, "'you are alike soon to have satisfaction enough. "'I wish you had mistaken the mother of this young man "'as well as you have his father.' "'And now being asked what he meant, "'with all the symptoms of horror, both in his voice and countenance, "'he told Orworthy the whole story,' which he had a little before, expressed such desire to Mrs. Miller to conceal from him. Allworthy was almost as much shocked at this discovery as Partridge himself had been while he related it. "'Good heavens!' says he. "'In what miserable distresses do vice and imprudence involve men? How much beyond our designs are the effects of wickedness sometimes carried!' He had scarce uttered these words when Mrs. Waters came hastily and abruptly into the room. Partridge no sooner saw her than he cried, "'Here, sir, here is the very woman herself. This is the unfortunate mother of Mrs. Jones. I am sure she will acquit me before your honour. Pray, madam.' Mrs. Waters, without paying any regard to what Partridge said, and almost without taking any notice of him, advanced to Mr. Alworthy i believe sir it is so long since i had the honour of seeing you that you do not recollect me indeed answered alworthy you are so very much altered on many accounts that had not this man already acquainted me who you are i should not have immediately called you to my remembrance have you madam any particular business which brings you to me alworthy spoke this with great reserve for the reader may easily believe he was not well pleased with the conduct of this lady "'neither with what he had formerly heard, nor with what Partridge had now delivered. "'Mrs. Waters answered, "'Indeed, sir, I have very particular business with you, and it is such as I can impart only to yourself. "'I must desire, therefore, the favour of a word with you alone, for I assure you what I have to tell you is of the utmost importance.' "'Partridge was then ordered to withdraw.' But before he went, he begged the lady to satisfy Mr. Alworthy that he was perfectly innocent, to which she answered, You need be under no apprehension, sir. I shall satisfy Mr. Alworthy very perfectly of that matter. Then Partridge withdrew, and that passed between Mr. Alworthy and Mrs. Waters, which is written in the next chapter. End of section 63